You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, Jim O'Rourke. Hey, Jim. Hello, everybody. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. All right. Thank you for having me today. Our pleasure. Maybe. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I guess we'll see. No, we're incredibly excited to be talking to you today. You have actually been on our list since the beginning of people that we've been wanting to talk to. The wish list. The wish list. And today (laughs) it's happening. I mean, dude, you have been going since the 80s, since those... Mm. The, the the cassette culture days, Sound of yeah. Pig. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about those days. Tell us about those beginnings back in the 80s for you in Chicago. Well, one thing, just for context, one thing to understand is back in that time, so you, you had several sort of worlds that were separate, but also sort of collided. You had sort of like uh, American improv, you know, happening which was sort of sort of had a a more southern state uh uh affiliation you had people like davy williams and Ladonna smith and of course it was eugene chabber of course there was like the famous people like you know and you know zorn and kaiser and all the sort of uh first generation post uh, incus or whatever you want to call it and but you had these people like davy williams who was running a uh fanzine not a fanzine it was a like a stapled xerox zine called the improviser and so you had that and then you had uh sort of uh the the u.s equivalent of 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 you know whatever you want to call it industrial noise stuff which was mostly mostly of course probably best known like through rrr through ron lassard's stuff definitely but there was also you know there was then there was the stuff that sort of tilted towards the, uh, for lack of a better words, the strange Americana or whatever, you know, like post-residence, post-like uh, outsider music. And so you had things like audiophile tapes and Sound of Pig. But all these things had sort of intersected because cassette was the easy way to make, first of all, to record at home. And to also be able to share it with others. You know, I, I don't even think, see, to print up an LP was like really a big deal independently at that time. So you've got all these people from different fields of music using the cassette as a way to spread their music to other people. And because, almost because of the medium and because it's sort of the crossover of Xerox magazines, you had a lot of crossover. So in Chicago, you uh, I was... I was first coming from being interested in free improvised music and, and for lack of a better word, you know, contemporary classical electronic music. So there were clubs in Chicago and spaces where on one day you'd have Eugene Chadbourne and then the next day you'd have Boy Dirt Carr. So everything was, everything was sort of cross-pollinating. So I started making cassettes, you know, and basically, you know, just... You would just be, and you would also, there was also the, uh, the sort of male art world where, you know, cassettes also intersected. So it was very normal for everyone to put their address on something, you know, like, or you, like, if you want, if you want my cassette, send me your cassette. This was really, really normal. And that's how I became friendly with like, say, Masami, Owen Null, 
And a lot of people in Japan, because you would just send a cassette and they'd send you their cassette. And, uh, and a lot of people in Europe. Chicago was sort of a center for a very specific type of American noise, I guess you could say. You know, you had, you had Milwaukee and Chicago, basically, was sort of the, I mean, if I remember incorrectly, you know, because up in Milwaukee, you had Boyder Carr, and you had, uh, I don't know if they were FI yet. Or, you know, they were FI. It yeah, was FI. Yeah, yeah. It was FI. I, I know there was like various permutations of it. In Chicago, there was a couple of groups that probably people don't know the names. That was a pile of cows who I believe were from Wisconsin. I don't know that one. And strangely, they were like the big, they were the big boys in the pond at the time. They even had a VHS cassette. Uh, I remember, yeah, pile of cows, uh, burden of friendship and research defense squad and research defense squad and burden of friendship were really important in Chicago because there was a radio station called WZRD, which was at a Northeastern university. And it was a, like a public, uh, is that what you would say? A public college. And sure. Yeah. 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 Community and college. A community college. That's right. I, I yeah. knew that yeah. wasn't the right word. And basically if you took a one credit class and then didn't even show up, you could be a DJ on the station. So at the station during the eighties, everyone on there was just weirdos who would take wow. the one class and it was a free form mm -hmm. radio station. You weren't allowed to use your name on air. And it was basically just a 24 hour free form thing. And it was all people who were playing stuff, you know, like White House or, yes. yeah, it wasn't all stuff like that, but it was all, eventually when I started DJing on there, you know, in the collection, they had like the AMM crypt box and things like that. So, you know, it's like, it's that kind of thing. So the burden of friendship guys who are also, I believe the same guys who are research defense squad, they would do these broadcast, they would actually play in the studio for like eight, six, eight hours at a time, like overnight. And mm -hmm. I remember... In high school, I would listen to a show and know, not know what the hell was going on. I mean, this is like when I was 13 or so, uh, before I knew what it was. And I just, because no one would come on and say what was happening or what they were playing. But I mean, if a DJ was playing, sometimes they'd say what they were playing, but they never say that, you know, we were playing and our names are. And sometimes it was probably, you know, a half hour after oh, they already played something. Right. So you're just. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of the soup of what Chicago was sort of like at that time. And there was there was the cross also, also New Music America still existed at the time, which was a, a kind of roving new music festival that lasted, I think, until 1990. And uh, I think most famously, the Chicago one, which I think was in 81 or 82, uh, Bronca played at that, and then John Cage went on WBZ the next day and and declared it fascist music. <laughs> that's sort of a, that's sort of the famous story from uh, uh, New Music. So, uh, and then and then you had Derek Bailey coming to town. AMM was playing all the time. Uh, of course, there was the AACM and all that stuff happening. But Chicago, especially then, was really segregated. You know, there was stuff that existed only on the South Side where the University of Chicago was this sort of weird o oasis in the middle of it, of uh, nerdy white people. So that was sort of like what I was, you know, growing up in. So the cassette thing, it was just really normal. I remember I would occasionally send the cassettes to people in New York and, you know, especially then sh people in Chicago had a kind of a complex about New York, mm -hmm. you know, because New York was like the place you go to make it, you know. And I remember I sent cassettes to some people there. 
but mostly it was like involved in the sort of underground cassette world. You know, like I did before I did anything under my own name. I, I had a few cassettes on sound of pig and I think that, would that be under Elvis Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in, in my defense, in my defense, that was before the El- that was before the Elvis revival happened. It was really right. It wasn't right. it wasn't cool yet to use Elvis. And <laughs> I remember when when Sue Miller, who was booking at uh, a club called the Cubby Bear across oh, yeah. from the uh, Wrigley Field. I mean, it was mostly a bar, you know, uh, like a, a, a Cubs bar, you know, for the for the people who went to see the baseball. But then she moved to 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 start Lounge Axe in Lincoln Park, and I remember like within the first because I was go, I was by that time I was going to DePaul, which was about a twenty second walk. The music school was literally a twenty second walk to Lounge Axe, and I took one of the Elvis Messiah's cassettes to her to see if I could get a gig there. And I went back a few days later, and she like kind of. She was kind of upset with me. She's like, "There's no Elvis songs on here." Uh, I, 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 I found I found out then she was a genuine Elvis fan. So I, I didn't play at the lounge X for a few years. But anyway, so that was that was yeah, that was the Elvis Messiahs, which was some, well, and, and, which was whatever you know. <laughs> on the some kind of pagan tape, you do thank Dan Burke. So right. was Dan an illusion of safety? Uh, someone you were in contact with early early on? Yeah, I I. I I bought, I remember I bought, yeah, because Illusion of Safety was another one of the groups in Chicago. And I forget where I first saw them, but I remember buying their cassettes at either, probably at Wax Tracks, because Wax Tracks Mm -hmm. was right, uh, when Wax Tracks was an amazing store. I mean, the I know there's a really good documentary about it, and it's more about the two guys, of course, who were really amazing, interesting guys. But the shop was really interesting because it was really uh, democratic about what it sold. It wasn't a shop that like sold wax tracks and wax tracks affiliated music. It sold everything. It sold even just regular uh, like old rock, but it was really supportive of like, of uh, like the kind of stuff that was coming out of Europe. Like that's where you would go to buy your, you know, your P16 D4 records or or Hafler Trio records or things like that, as well as they would they would sell your cassette if you were, you know, just some uh, consignment, you know, like that's right. where I got, I mean I was buying corn plastic cassettes there at the time, you know, and so they had Illusion of Safety cassettes because uh, probably because you know Dan would go in and and I believe Cabaret Metro for a small time around that time had a tiny record store next door, like a kind of Cabaret Metro store. Oh, and cool. and uh, you, I remember I bought in seventy countries the iOS cassette there. So I forget how I think we were on the same bill or something because I remember Burden of Friendship asked me to open for them when they played at Exit, and I was under eighteen. I think this is because you know there was there was places like there was like the place called Upper Links, which is a place where like Eugene Chadbourne or, or people like that would play. And, you know, it's just, you would cross, it would cross over. And probably because of the Elvis Messiahs or something, uh, we would all, you know, play at all sorts of clubs. And uh, so I, I have to admit, I forget exactly how Dan and I met. By like 87 or 88, he, I was playing in the group. It was the second record, the second iOS record was, I believe, a recording of a live show in Milwaukee that we did with 
It was City of Worms. It wasn't Hands too. Jeff German, but I think it was he was doing City of Worms yeah. at that show. Oh wow! And, and Eric Lundy, like in '87 or '88 in Milwaukee, and so that was like my first LP. And I was like, I think I was wait, eighteen or nineteen then. Yeah. So and then oh, I wow. I started I started working with Dan a lot then, and also the band was sort of changing at that time. It was kind of these core core four guys up until that point. And also Tim Jones and Chris Block. And I believe Mark Klein was getting busier, like professionally work. And I believe the one guy I never met, actually, he had already moved away. I'm sorry that I forgot his name right now. And it's because I never met him. And uh, Mitch, Mitch Enderley was also his, he was starting a family. So it was starting to become Dan and whoever more than the core four. And so for a while, I was sort of like, you know, working with Dan a lot. Uh, so that was like illusion. That was illusion of safety time for me. Yeah. Well, how did you get tapped into these zines and, and tape culture? Like what, what spawned this interest for you? Like where did, was it finding tapes at, at wax tracks and around or what, what actually led to this? It's, it was, I mean, it was initially because I found out about that stuff through my interest in free improvisation and like, and because I was already in touch with people like Chad Bourne and Derek Bailey and especially David Williams uh, through these zines and stuff and, and the concerts, because there was a mixture of things, I found out about this music that was happening in Europe that was, you know, like P16D4 and Hafler Trio and, and uh, things like that, that was similar in many ways, which was coinciding with my disillusionment. Uh, with college because I was interested in making tape music and that's what I wanted to do as a composition uh, student or whatever. And the professors there knew nothing about it. They had no interest in it. Uh, I was interested in like, look Ferrari and and Parmigiani. And I would, that was like, that was like what I was really, really into. And I was starting to understand, I didn't fully understand then, but I was starting to understand the sort of aesthetic and political problems with the, that world of music. And the thing that I was noticing, and I wasn't really able to articulate it then, but it was a thing that attracted me to things like half trio and P16D4 and people like that, is that it was a music that was using much a lot of the same vocabulary, not necessarily to different ends, similar ends, but different ends, but was not involved politically and aesthetically with academia. So that the whole world of music opened up to me. And that was also connected with like introducing me to all sorts of underground music that wasn't necessarily that. And a big key factor to that is, is the whole, uh, I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's an era that goes from, from Eddie Prevo to David Jackman, and then finally to Christoph Heeman. And then when I, when I when we end up on Christoph Heeman around '88, that's when everything. Because I I went to his house in Germany and his record collection, like you know, was like at that time was like the greatest thing on earth. But you know, there's, there's sort there was sort of so yeah, the magazines did have a lot to do with it because it was this cross pollination in the magazines. It was things like uh, there was one called Electronic Cottage, which I believe was Hal McGee's magazine. And yeah, so, cause and yeah, effect. Yeah. So it was this cross pollination. I mean, you had the stuff from New York, which was sort of like that. I mean, kind of all the stuff from New York was like sort of either was was like 
either was borrowing from, I mean, generalizing here, but it's kind of true. <laughs> he was either uh, uh, pulling from Neubauten or was pulling from White House, you know. Uh, so you had, you know, you had missing foundation, you had this, you had that. But the stuff in the Midwest sort of had a little bit of that. Of course, you had Boyd or Carr. Uh, and then, but it was also sort of pulling from the South, the sort of like, you know, the, the Blitzoids and stuff like that. So Chicago was a sort of a weird cross-pollination. So the kind of West Coast thing didn't come to Chicago till later, the sort of like post, you know, like Savage Republic and stuff like that. That wasn't so strong at first. These early experiments and tapes you were doing, say, 87 through 89, like, you know, if we look at the sound of pig tape, that's that's solo guitar, right? Yeah, was yeah. The Elvis Messiahs, was that guitar-based as well, or were you doing no, different it things? Was, Elvis Messiahs was basic. There was a band version of the Elvis Messiahs, which was uh, basically friends, uh, one high school friend, Peter Domchek. Uh, like the early, I think the earliest Elvis Messiah stuff, I was still in high school. So it was mostly embarrassing tape experiments at home with, uh, uh, it was a tape deck I made made by Tascam where you could bounce mono to mono, you know, like like having two mono tape decks and, and stuff Peter Domchek, which was mostly just improvised stuff. But once I got to college, I put together a band, band version, which was imp improvised music, but, a, you know, in a rock band format, not, not jamming. It was, you know, I didn't like, I never liked jamming. And so that had uh, Tim Mulvella on drums, who eventually would play with Ken Vandermark and Pete Adamchek, who was my high school buddy. And Jeff Kolakowski, also a composition major at DePaul, and he played keyboards. And I think he he's a composition professor at DePaul now. And a real and a kind of a amazing guy named Steve Molitor. Uh, I wish I knew where this guy was. This guy was an oboe player in the orchestra that I was in in college. And the 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 concert hall at DePaul, which was was an old church, and that's where the orchestra would rehearse. And it had a ch old church organ. And Steve Molitor had found the door to go up into the back where the like, you know, the person would go to tune the, the pipes and everything and do maintenance. And he lived in there for a year. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he had this like, like wow. little futon and like a little box with like strange foods. And so he was in it. And then the last guy was uh, all this guy was actually very important. It was a guy named Perry Venson and Perry Venson was an older guy. And he was one of the people who was involved in booking at Upper Links. And he it was him, Eric Leonardson, and uh, Steve Zerang, who you might know also from playing with Ken Vandermark. And so Perry Venson had one foot in the sort of proto-loft world because he lived down south, I think, in an area called Pilsen. So it was my first experience of some... Of, what in my head existed in New York, that sort of like Zorn Cobra, you know, uh, Michael Snow back in the 60s, Tony Conrad, loft living. So going to his place, even though it wasn't really that kind of thing, was the first time I'd ever seen anything like it. And he was sort of very important in getting us on playing shows with people more involved, you know, like with Chad Bourne and things like that. So he was very important. So that was like the group version. And the cassettes would be about half the group and half like whatever tape things I was doing in, in college at the time. 
once I put out the solo guitar tape, I just, the Elvis and Sias just sort of stopped. I don't know. I can't quite remember why. And was this around the time that you were getting in contact with John Duncan? Well, and uh, it wasn't was so it much all th- around the same time. Yeah. I mean, there was people I was getting time in the case of John Duncan at, at that time, uh, there was sort of a sort of nexus of promoters, I guess you would say, for when people would come over. And you had Ron Lassard, of course. Yep. And then in Philadelphia, there was a guy named Manny Thiner. <laughs> oh, yeah. if, yep. if you know the name, you know the stories. Uh, yeah, and yeah, then- <laughs> yeah. Any, anytime he comes up, it always uh, generates a good laugh. <laughs> yeah. And then in Chicago, it was Dan Burke and me uh, for that for the for that kind of stuff. Right. So uh, the 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 way I met John Duncan, the the way I met Mickey Housewolf was because I was putting on their shows, usually through uh, Lower Links, which by that time was like another club in the same building as Links, that put on, I guess you could say more commercial underground music, like you know, like Chadbourne moved down there because we get a fairly good audience. We're Soviet France, like we brought, so, but we didn't. It's not like we brought them over. It's like they're coming and they needed a network, right? You know, mm-hmm. and there was one sort of in place. I forget who was doing it in California. Who did it in? The, oh, it was probably uh, later on. It was Mason Mason Jones. He later definitely on. was a big part. Yeah, of it, like yeah. Around, like around ninety or so. Mason, I think Mason Jones was taking care of people in San Francisco or L.A. I think it was San Francisco. But anyway, that's how I met John, and that's how I met Mickey. Is that also how you met Masami? And did, did, did that's you... how I met. That's how I met Masami in person yeah. for the first time. But we had been we yeah. had been cassette buddies for a while. So and you put this... on that Chicago show, or help put that on? Yes. The... As... Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm playing on that show that that's live, oh, really? live at the Looking Glass. I was yeah. doing I was doing the sound, and Masami said, "Do whatever you want from the board," which I didn't do very much. But I'm actually right, right. I'm actually playing wow. with them on that one. Yeah, oh, that was that's live. So that, was, cool. that was live at the look, and I recorded it. And uh, yeah, that was live at the Looking Glass, and I believe that was a double bill with Illusion of Safety. Yeah, so yeah, Masami and Null. And Alb, I knew already from the like the cassette trading days, right? Uh, but and Null came on his own because he had a rock band, you know. Uh, that would he that mm-hmm. was outside of the world of that. So the first time I met Null was when Zenny Geva first came to Chicago. Although we'd been in touch, uh, I think we even made um we had maybe we had already made a duo cassette at that time. I think the and first then you did this. The CD that's on Charnel House, right? Was there yeah. a tape before that? There was a tape before that, actually, now that I think about it. That's right, because I remember I was sort of embarrassed about no, really, really wanted to reissue it. This is like back then when CDs started happening, and I really didn't want them to do it at the time. So I'd forgotten about that. That's right. There was a cassette before that. All right, Neuro Echo Media. God, I remembered the name. And anyway, <laughs> oh, wow. so what happened with that CD? Is because the, that Zenny Geva show, which was also the day I first met Albini, because he was there. They were there to record in Chicago. Mason Jones was on the bill at Lounge Axe. So I met Mason at that show. And wow. I was playing solo, and then Null and I did a duo. And I forget if Mason said that day or whatever, but it, it, it that Mason was there that day. Dude, that's so cool. But then around this time, you ended up going to Europe for a while, right? I was there a lot. Well, this is, I'll explain it really quickly. My parents are, are from Ireland. 
They're not, right. they're not American. I eventually got to London because I begged my parents when I was 16 because my mom had a step, a stepsister who lived in London. And I wanted to go visit Derek Bailey. So there's that. So yeah, I sorry, I've already have some sort of foothold over there because I've gone there. And what happens, I became because AMM played in Chicago a lot, uh, I became friendly with Eddie Prevo uh, because of connections of people in Chicago. And I would also visit Eddie uh, when I, uh, I would see him play like with Derek or, or whoever when I was in London. And one day I mentioned to Eddie how much I liked the record he had done with David Jackman on Matchless, which I think is called Crux Flayed, I think. It was a, a split LP, I believe, on, on, on Matchless. And Eddie said, well, you should tell him that. And I was like, well, how does one do that? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so he, he said, oh, I'll call up David and, and make an introduction. So this is like 87 or 88. I was at school at DePaul. I had gotten my first very tenuous sort of orchestra thing played. And it, you know, it wasn't bad for a kid but it wasn't that great and it wasn't that well played, but I had a cassette of it with me. I forget exactly how it happened, but David Jackman said, come on down. Uh, uh, let's have a, a, a tea, you know? And so I go down there and it's like, it's David Jackman, you know, I'm like freaked, you know, cause I loved organ. and the guy was in the scratch orchestra for Christ's sake. And he was immediately really, really nice to me. And he wanted to hear the cassette. And I played in a cassette and it's, I'm really glad this, this never happened, but he's like, I'm about to do a new organ on 12 inch with my friend, Christoph. He's like, I don't have a second side yet. Why don't we just put this on the second side and make it a split? Oh. Whoa. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I hadn't had, I, didn't, <laughs> I hadn't had an LP or anything out at that time. Right. And so he said, well, you should go meet Christoph. So the, the, another call was made. And I believe, I don't think there was a high, I think I took the ferry from London over to wherever it was at that time. And then I took the train to Aachen and I met Christoph and like, and then that was like, that's where ex the explosion happened. That's like, wow. and from that point, basically until college, until college ended, I did this thing where I would buy records in the States that I knew would sell for a lot of money in Europe because Christoph lived right by this record store called Dragnet Records, which was sort of a big hub for avant-garde records in both Germany and Europe itself. And so that's how I would fund going, going to Europe during the school break. And I would wow. basically live, uh, I basically lived like a bum for those three months. Uh, I would eat, I would, I had a place in, in Aachen, thanks to Christoph. I lived in this tiny little, like basically Christoph's studio, which was this tiny little apartment on the ground floor that I guess for le German legal reasons couldn't be rented as an apartment. Uh, so, so I would live like a bum there. Or by that time, John Duncan had moved from Japan to Amsterdam. So right. I would either be living in, in Aachen or I'd be living in Amsterdam at John's. And John's place was a 20-second walk from Stall Plot. So, so, nice. so the, the, plot, the plot thickens every step you go. Wow. So, so I mean, I mean a really, a lot of it is, is thanks to the, to the kindness of Christoph and John. I didn't really have a place like that in Paris, which is fine. You know, maybe I'd have one show in Amsterdam or one show in, you know, 
like uh, Ralph from P16D4 was really nice in setting up shows for me. And I was still doing the tabletop guitar then uh, as a, a, for, for playing live. And, you know, these guys would put on a show and then I'd be like, okay, I have a show in Frankfurt. So that means I'll stay in Aachen for the next month until the, that one show in Amsterdam. And then I'll stay at John's for a month. So, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I'm 20 at this point and I'm probably really stupid. I don't think I was a horrible, I, I probably was a fairly decent house guest because my parents were really strict, but I was still young and stupid and I probably was a pain in the butt. I, I don't, I don't, but I don't think they're still my friends. So maybe not. <laughs> I think, uh, I think you might've did okay. I, I mean, but I'm sure I did stupid young person stuff, but then once college finished, I pretty much did that for the next three years. I was pretty much in Europe constantly until about 95. And then it was like sort of half and half. You must've seen some incredible shows. Oh yeah. When you were over there. I saw P16D4. There you go. Ah, of course. I mean, that's, that, that's, that was amazing. That was an amazing show. Yeah, I saw, I mean, I got to see a lot of great stuff. I mean, it wasn't until 94 or 95 where things started happening in America that that drew me back there. And things were, I mean, things were good in Europe in the 90s. I mean, you could, you know, I mean, I didn't really get the places like Berlin. I didn't, never really went there because things were really, I mean, I forget what year the wall came down, but things really weren't happening there that much until later. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like in Amsterdam, you have the stall plot shop, which you can't underestimate the importance of the stall plot shop. Mm -hmm. We've you only know. heard incredible stories about yeah. people going there and the stuff they found and just the connections made I was, through that store. I was laughing when I was listening to the episode you did with, uh, uh, with uh, Nigel. Uh, Nigel Ayers. Because one of the things I did when I'd be staying with John, I mean, I would go to the stall plot shop almost every day there was uh i mean i had two friends there of course franz devord was there so it was kind of like a hangout but like whenever there was a weird packaging stall plot release i would chip in so there was like there was a there was a nocturnal emissions cd that was in a tin can and then over the cd was uh salt i remember the rest that of the one. can was filled with salt so like i i put the salt in those cans <laughs> <laughs> Not, I mean, uh, Yolanda and, and, and Franz, I don't know if Franz did or not, <laughs> but uh, I think if, whenever I showed up, uh, I, I, I maybe maybe I ended up doing Franz's work, but uh, yeah, so I was sort of like living like a bum then. I mean, it was an amazing world to be in. And then down the street, just the exact op opposite way from John's place was where uh, Andrew McKenzie and uh, Zbigniew Karkovsky lived in the house of uh, Willem de Ritter. So wow. So cool. And I believe Zev was in Amsterdam at that time as well. So it was like a, it was a happening scene in Amsterdam. I mean, the, the energy must've been just great. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there was really any energy or, or not. Uh, I think, I mean, for me it was because first of all, I was out of the States and away from it, you know, Away from all that, yeah, young uh, in your early twenties, yeah, yes. just felt, I'm, yeah, you were just yeah. adventurous, I, yeah. yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living the, the, you know, the life, as you say. I mean, I'm, I'm living off basically off falafels because I was, I was a vegetarian since I was thirteen, so uh, which was good in that case because it meant I ate cheap, 
regardless, but I was at that time in Amsterdam, falafel was the cheapest thing you could buy, which was handy because I liked them. Um, and basically the kindness of John and Christoph, you know, on the other hand, when I would be, you know, in Aachen, Aachen wasn't like a major city, you know, like, like Amsterdam was. So going to Aachen was like either recording or listening incessantly to records because Christoph had the most amazing record collection. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was an amazing time. Where did you record the Disengage album that Stallplot put out? Disengage was record. Oh yeah, <laughs> that goes. Yeah, that goes back. To, uh, still in college, there was a friend of mine who uh, uh, named Warren Fisher, uh, who later you might know his name from. He became famous with a group. Oh God, I forget the name. I'll remember it in a minute. But anyway. He was a violinist. He was uh, from, I believe, Madison, Wisconsin, and he was a really talented violinist and bassist. And he had a sort of a uh, a group called Table, which had a, 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 a kind of a moment when music like the Jesus Lizard was popular in Chicago. Let's like, say. Kind of am rep, kind of a little, little type am, a little stuff, am right? rep, a little bit am rep, a little bit more gothy, a little four gotcha. four AD am rep mix but anyway gotcha. he was a violinist and we were and he's the violinist on uh on a young person's guide to drowning i believe wow uh but but what happened was he was going to the university the school of the art institute i think it's called right and they had in their basement an actual electronic music studio that had an a-track tape tape deck a then completely new dap machine that was the big thing and it had an emu modular system and uh not the emu sampler but the old analog emu machine and students there would sign out time and there was an overnight bracket where you would sign out the whole like midnight to morning and so what he would do is he would sign that up and then let me in and then he would most usually go home and so i was using the art institute's studio to record this would be like 88, 89, probably, maybe, if I'm getting it right. And so that whole uh, Young Person's Guide to Drowning was recorded there. And uh, Long Night, which didn't come out for like another 20 years, was also recorded there. Uh, Mir, the other part of, of Young Person's Guide, was, I believe, recorded it in my own little... Uh, I had a, I had gotten a Tascam eight-track machine, like a quarter-inch eight-track machine. There was this old thing where it was this quarter-inch eight-track machine and a mixer in the same big unit, and I had somehow gotten that cheap because you know, DAT machine, uh, DAT, ADAT, and DAT was starting to be popular. So you could get tape machines really cheap. So those those were recorded almost simultaneously, and what had happened is, Franz initially wanted to put out the ground below above our heads. So that ended up Frank Dahmer, who was a friend of, was part of the Cologne scene. And that's what kind of, we've forgotten about that, was, which were friends with Christoph. He ended up putting out, so, so Franz said, send me the next thing you make. And at the same time, Geert Jan, who ran Stallplot, said, send me the next thing you make. So, so what ended, so that, that CD is actually a Stallplot Corn Plastics co-release. Right on. So which which record is which, I don't actually don't know. 
<laughs> so so that record was put out by by Geertjan and and uh, Franz, who was at that time working at Stallplot. You mentioned DAT recorders, and mm. you you put out a DAT on Solid Moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, unusual format to see a, a release in. What what prompted well, that? I think I, Charles asked me to. Charles, I think, wanted to do a series of it. Uh, Charles Pound, for, for the listeners, who ran Soleil Moon, who I never met, I don't believe. Maybe briefly, I think. Maybe briefly. I never met him. He was a very nice guy, though, by, by communication. And I think he did two or three dats before he stopped it. Hmm. I think maybe there was a Soviet France or a Soviet France-related one. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, he just basically asked me. And I think it's just, I think it, and I think it even, I think it was called use maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause it was, it was really, it wasn't really a, like a thing. It was like, here's materials to, to make stuff with, use it. Oh, and right. Sort it, of a, I, a musician's yeah. toolkit sort of thing. Here's, here's yeah, some I think sounds. It, I, I think it was all the source materials that I used to make send, if I remember correctly. Send or, yeah, probably send or scan is basically all the sound recordings I made to make that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wonder how many, now I got to look that up later. I wonder how, I wonder how many dats he made. I know, I know there was more than one. I think there was more than mine. Yeah. They probably, anyone's out there are probably unplayable now though. Well, we're, we are sort of fascinated with that because that is <laughs> We we kind of came in post that. Yeah, right. we're after that. We're at we're yeah we're we're AD. PD post that <laughs> AD after that. But so much of the stuff that we talk about, and especially those early nineties yeah. stuff, and especially the Japanese stuff, played yes. such a role. All recorded on that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's just such a for us. It's just a fascinating format because it's just we just that kind of was already gone by the time we were doing yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, I remember from when I eventually started putting stuff out myself. I mean, I mean, not, not my stuff, but like I, I, I did, uh, I think the first thing I, I, that I released as a label was, uh, was eco bondage actually. Oh, right. Uh, what was, and it must've been on dad. Oh yeah, of course it was. I mean, that yeah. was originally on cassette, but, but Masami sent a dad. Yeah, mm. of course. And, and uh, like, whenever Hino sent something, I mean, I wasn't really, I was helping with, you know, it was on dat. I was wondering because you were, you were corresponding with all of these people in Japan. Yeah. At what stage did you learn Japanese? When I moved here. <laughs> oh, oh. So was it, it was, it was later in life. It wasn't something you learned early on. No, no, I, I couldn't speak Japanese. I mean, and from 90, especially from 94 onwards, I was coming like every year. I would do anything I could to go to Japan and basically, Basically, from '94 onwards, I came every year, but you know, I think maybe at at that time, it's a uh, and that's getting into a whole long thing. But uh, there was more people who spoke English then than there are now. Like if you came to Japan now and didn't mm -hmm. have any Japanese, it would actually be more difficult now for English speaking person than it was back then. Um, but I mean, there were people like. Like uh, Otomo, Otomo Yoshihide, he, he speaks very good English. So there was always him. There was always a couple people at that time. Noel was pretty good with English. So it wasn't that difficult. I mean, I was still too, I was still, still too young and stupid to, and probably not in one place enough to be able to make that kind of commitment at that time. 
But uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I basically, when I moved here, I spent one year studying and that's all I did. I didn't work. I didn't do, I quit everything and just studied for a year and still do. You have to. <laughs> so from 94 on, is that when you came back to kind of being primarily in the space out of the States instead of yeah, Europe? I mean, I mean, it was sort of half and half because at that time, things that I was interested in and involved with were starting to happen in the States. Table of the Elements started. People had started moving to new to Chicago that were more open to the kind of things I wanted to do. But things like festivals and concerts were all still happening in the, in Europe at that time. I mean, there were right. no there was uh, there was no such thing as you know new music. America was dead at that point. And there, yeah, basic after 1990, there was no festivals. There's no concerts of that kind of stuff happening in the states outside of little spatters here and there. So by necessity, I would have to be in Europe at least half the time. By that point, I did have an apartment. I did eventually get an apartment in Chicago, first with an, a friend and then and then with Kevin, the same place with, with drum. So it was like half and half. And then more and more as I got involved with what was starting to happen in Chicago, because it was kind of new people coming into town, you know, you had which is now then that's of course the the story everyone knows the influx of people like David Grubbs and John McIntyre and Ken Vandermark and things started happening in Chicago so there was more reason for me to stay in Chicago because there was people to work with people closer my age up to that point I had only been working with people older than me I mean the person closest to my age was was Christoph and he's a good 6 or 7 years older than me at the same time, starting to work as a recording engineer to pay the bills kept me in Chicago at least at least half the time because I started more and more working as a recording engineer to pay the bills. And they all sort of, you know, blended together. And around that time, you started doing Dexter's Cigar too, right? With Yeah. Once, once I started working with David, I had done the Eco Bondage. But the next thing I wanted to do was Roberto Cacciapaglia's uh, Say Say Nota in Logica. And at that time, it was very hard to even find Mr. Cacciapaglia. And so I was kind of stalled. And then, yeah, once once the connection with Drag City and Gast happened, I believe I, you know, I was talking to Dave about how I wanted to do that. And we said, well, we should do the label. And that was going to be the first thing we did, wanted to do on Dexter's, but we never... At that time, couldn't find a way to contact him. And I forget what we ended up doing first. I think maybe David chose, if I'm remembering correctly, David chose the Circle XEP, and I wanted to do a voice crack no, uh, ear flash. Yes. And I think that was the first two. And that I already knew Norbert at that time. From I already knew the voice crack guy. So that was really, basically what I did on Dexter's, was like basically reissue records that I of course thought were great by my mentors or or whatever. So yeah, so and and the Circle XCP was was fantastic, and I know that was a very personal thing for David because I think that was a very important record for him in Louisville when he was young. So yeah, so that that's how Dexter Cigar started. Thanks thanks to the people at Drag City, and I think we did things really quickly. After that, I mean, I got I, I I asked Henry to put together Inside Outside Pleasure. I forget what it, it's a compilation of just his guitar solos from a couple of his early uh, mid seventies records, and then we did um, 
then I asked Masami because I really liked uh, Rainbow Electronics oh, when yeah. it came out. And I told Masami that like I really liked that one. He's like, oh, I've got another. <laughs> so, <laughs> so cool. <laughs> and you know what? I, I totally forgot this, but Warren Barchi told me it many, many years later because he was wearing it. I had forgotten that we actually did a Rainbow Electronics t-shirt. Did you uh, ever did you ever see uh, that? I don't no. remember that. Yeah, we did. Needles, needle off the Rainbow Electronics. Rainbow, yeah, Rainbow Electronics two two T-shirt. I oh my god, want that very badly. What was it? Was it like the 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 cover with just the colors, or it probably? (laughs) I don't remember it. I mean, you know that stuff we get taken care of by Dan Osborne and at Drag City. You know, he would he's a designer extraordinaire there. Uh, um, But. uh, yeah, I didn't remember that until Oren mentioned. And now that I'm thinking, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the other things on Dexter's were. Oh, yeah, of course, the Derek Bailey, Ida. Anyone listening right now who has a Rainbow Electronics t-shirt, please send a picture. Absolutely. Please. Or just or send, send it, it right along <laughs> to, uh, you can just, you know, Mike at Noise Extra. I'll send you the address. Yeah, we did corrected slogans. That's right. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's right. I, I shouldn't say we. That's really David. David was was really the. Oh, of course, the folk Arabe. That was yes. And uh, Lauren Mazking, Lauren Mazking one. That was really like David and I both together. Oh, and of course, Raphael Torrells and the Arnold Dryblot. Of course, I met Raphael. I was introduced to Raphael through Phil Kneeblock, who thought that we would get that we were. Because Raphael's, I think, about two years older than me, but he thought, okay, you guys are about the same age, but doing something. And then uh, uh, Folka Rabe, I had met through probably Matt Gustafsson or someone in Sweden. But I, I was a, I was a nutso fan of the of the Folka Rabe record from like college times. I would like I always had two or three copies of that record to be able to like to give someone back back when it was really cheap because <laughs> you could at back in like the 80s at rose records uh you know new music records would be a, become a cutout like a month later you know and you could wow buy them, you know and one interesting thing one more web connections the new music buyer at rose records in the 80s early 80s was a guy who, whose name i believe is jim fox and when he left Rose Records and moved to California and started the Cold Blue label, I don't wow. know if you know the Cold Blue label. No, but I know Rose Records very well. Uh, Cold Blue label is very, very important uh, to know about. Uh, it still exists, but it was a really, really important label in the eighties, front in out of uh, out of somewhere in California. It's a very, very important part of the history of avant-garde music in america so check that out cold blue it was people like daniel lentz Chaz smith all sorts of people really really important so you're back in chicago you've been you've been going around europe but in a pretty soon too you're gonna get hooked up with another really important crew the migo crew oh yeah how did that come about? When did you meet Peter and Christian and that whole that whole gang? I th- it was a festival, I believe, called Hyperstrings. I think it was either in 96 or 97. And Chris Migo had just started. I think there was uh well, I mean, I, when I went to the fest, I didn't know this. So Peter was there 
and Christian was there. Christian was playing. Peter wasn't playing. Peter was like, had just started Migo with Raymond. So Raymond was probably there too. But the fest, Ed, it was Eddie Prevost. I was there. Earth, that, that, that one-sided live Earth record, do you know what I'm talking about? That was that, was mm. that show. Okay. So you can find the exact date that I met Peter by looking up. It's, it might be 97. Um, and, uh, oh God, that, and null. oh boy, that was a crazy day. There was some crazy stuff backstage. If you, and Paul Kember, the Spaceman three guy. So, but anyway, Peter kind of came up to me. He's like, you know, we've just, we put out this and he gave me Christian's, uh, instrument 10 inch. And, uh, pretty, pretty soon right after that. Peter and Christian were playing at a fest called, oh God, it's so horrible. I always forget this. It's on the border of Austria and Hungary because it's a very, it was a very important free, free music festival. Uh, and I forget who I was playing with, but, uh, Christian and Peter were there and I had started using a, uh, I had started using a Mac by this point. I was using a Mac 520C which is a really old, uh, it's one of the first laptops that Mac made. And it was this, it was about this thick. Each, <laughs> each half of it was about as big as a Pismo. And it was, it had a, it had a big round ball for a mouse and it was gray. And I forget who I was playing there with using that, but um, Christian and Peter were playing in some other group. And Either Matt's or the guy who ran the festival, and it's horrible I've forgotten his name because he's a really great guy. But anyway, one of them had the idea. They said, you three should play in the bar afterwards because at this festival, after the shows were over, the musicians would all stay in the bar and sometimes shows would keep going on for the people who stayed in the bar. And so Christian had this like kind of old rolling guitar synth not the guitar synth part but like it was like a, a like a, a synth thing that you put your guitar into and and then peter had a, a double cd deck and i had this mac 520c and we did and we just played and matt's went bonkers he was just going bonkers about it and and he would say, oh, you guys got to start a band. You guys got to start a band. <laughs> and I, it's my memory's a little vague, but we just got along so well and we're laughing because the music was goofball, you know, because <laughs> it was. <laughs> Our stuff was always completely goofball. Uh, and that was really uncommon, you know, at that time. And uh, of course, it was really uncommon to have a, a, a laptop uh, mm -hmm. at right. that time. But Peter set up a tour or something. and. For Fennoberg? Yeah, and I don't even know if we were called Fennoberg yet. I think we, we just it was just our names, I believe. I think even mm -hmm. the first record is not Fennoberg, maybe. And so when I got back to Europe to do that, they both had computers. So it was like, okay, we're a laptop band. <laughs> Which, you know, I didn't think that at the time. I was like, oh, this is cool. And I didn't drink and I didn't smoke. And And Peter and Christian at the time smoked and drank beers as good Austrian people did. So our setup on stage, so I figure, okay, I got to do that too. So our setup on stage was <laughs> Peter had a beer laptop ashtray. Then I would always be in the middle of beer, which I didn't drink very much of laptop ashtray. And that started my thing of, oh, I smoke when I'm in Vienna. 
and <laughs> and then Christian beer, laptop, ashtray. And the first tours were nuts because people would really, really be pissed off. There was, I mean, <laughs> there would be shit thrown at us. I got punched. I got punched in the stomach by this giant. Oh my god! That's this was actually at the festival. This wasn't a Fennerberger. One show in Hamburg. We were told we were playing on a boat, and that wasn't that uncommon then. Like a lot of there was a place called Stubnitz, I believe. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. No, yeah Stubnitz. Okay. So yeah, so there was that was really not that uncommon. So we didn't thinking think anything of it. So you get to Hamburg, and uh, the uh, <laughs> oh god, there's so many Fennerberg stories. So we get to the. The, the the guy brings us to the dock and there's this basically like a large speedboat there. <laughs> They'll fit about like eight people. And we're like, oh, this is going to take us to the ship? And he's like, no, this is the ship. <laughs> so we're sitting on the back by the by the propeller, like the, the, the motor with this like piece of wood on two milk crates. And then they take off and we're playing through like like basically a boom box. And we did this, we did this for like 15 minutes. I think Christian's old, was older than us. So if he got fed up, he said something and he made <laughs> take, take us back to the dock. I think we only played like 15 minutes and we didn't even go to the hotel. We just went right to the train station and went, went to the next city. <laughs> wow. And the part, a part of that, sh- I, even in that situation, I managed to record it. And that's what that Escape from Hamburg track is. That's what it's called. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> I think every every title of the of the first two Fennelberg records refers to some insane situation we were in. Well, I mean, Christian was saying those shows got crazy, and yeah. he said that and he said that what that there was that city in Japan oh, oh, that you guys played in. So you you kind of wrote me about that, but tell us about that because I, I, that sounds wild. Yes. So Omuta, this was the this was the last tour, uh, which was in Japan. Although we did gigs after that, but this was the last tour. It was a Japan tour that I set up, and uh, one and <laughs> there's but anyway, we were playing in a city called Omuta which is in the South and it's a big uh, onsen resort town. And it has supposedly, I may be wrong, but supposedly the hottest onsens in Japan. So they call it the hell onsens, which is why the record's called in hell. So we were playing in this sort of abandoned, what used to be like a luxury hotel or something like that. But, but, you know, after the bubble burst, the economic bubble burst in Japan, lots of these places were like basically abandoned or left abandoned. And it had been turned into sort of a sort of a squat, uh, you know, whatever kind of place that had like little places. And they would put on shows in there in what used to be a karaoke place, like a like a live like one of those places where not rooms, not mm-hmm. karaoke rooms, but like a big stage karaoke place. And it was like half pulled apart. And so the electricity in this building was really kind of dodgy because it was sort of illegal. And so we were playing in the power, every, any, on another floor, this crazy guy who was the driver who had this other band, he, they, they were kind of like <laughs> really low level living people. So they, on tour, they would bring a rice cooker with them so that they didn't have to buy food on tour. They would just like, 
cook rice and everyone in the band just basically ate rice on on tour and anytime they plug this rice cooker on in on another floor it would blow the power in the cl- in the in the club <laughs> so this kept happening and and so the, during these breaks, I think Christian was probably <laughs> drinking beers because <laughs> in Japan, you get as many beer as you want. And uh, by the time the power had come on for like part three of our show, uh, I think I, I forget what goofball I forget now, but I'm playing basically some really obvious classic rock riff, like at one tenth speed, just looping away. And Peter's adding something. And I look over and we had these kind of swivel chairs because it was an old uh, karaoke place. And I look over at Christian and he, he, he was bringing a guitar. Now at this point, he would have the laptop and a guitar because he already had like a sort of solo setup at that point. And he's there like lost in it, like just kind of doing slow motion, like, you know, like Jeff Beck or whatever, <laughs> but it's like, like only one note every 10 seconds. And he's really lost. And I kind of just like nudge Pierre, like, look over there. <laughs> and there's Christian sort of like lost in this. And so we just like, okay, we're, we're going to enjoy this. So we just, we just turned around and looked at Christian and like, just watched him. And it ended up, and later when I listened to him, it ended up, we, we actually sat there and watched him for about 20 minutes and I don't know if you know, there's that, there's that whole sidelong track called Christian rocks. And that's what that is. That's, that's what that that's is. What basically oh Peter and I watching Christian do like some amazing lost in the haze guitar solo over basically amazing. some two loops that Peter and I just let go. How did you get interested in making computer music so early on? Um, well, I mean, I was really interested in computers from a very young age because I was, you know, I was like just the right age for like, as a young person, it being even possible to be able to touch computers. I mean, it became a few years, it became possible to actually buy a computer. But like I was taking classes in high school, I was taking classes at a place called Triton College, which was another uh, public college in Chicago. And I was also taking a there was basically there was some sort of there was some sort of program where uh if if you got above some kind of grade point average or whatever i don't know uh but basically train college had these they would let high schoolers audit classes there so i took a radio production class where basically you worked at a radio station a tv production class and computer programming uh which was on apple i think the first the first apples whatever it's called the apple not the first, the Apple II was the second one, right? Yeah. Okay. Which was on Apple II. So at that point, I was already interested in programming. And my sister, my sister's older than me. Her boyfriend and later her husband was a computer programmer. So um, I would find out about things from him, like about assembly language and stuff like that. And he worked, he was still in he had he was in college at that time so he was still working and he worked at a machine shop that made potentiometers and i've i've said that story before but i he got me a job there like when i was 13 and that is how i saved money to buy a texas instrument 994a computer and with that i started learning assembly and actually the first collaboration i did with masami was made and it never came out was made with with using the Texas Instrument computer to 
control a four channel mixer, basically just turn channels on and off, not, not volume, just basically relay switches. And I was playing four cassettes, like uh, basically Masami had sent me source stuff. I made four copies, rewind them. So they were all different places, put it in. And then the Texas instrument computer with this program written in basic was basically, you know, switching between the cassettes and blah, blah, blah. That never came out. No, I don't even know. A lot of cassette stuff from that time just got lost. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, I don't know. What I want to hear this. <laughs> I, mean, I, know. I mean, it, yeah. probably, it probably wasn't that good. I mean, Masami's sound was probably great, but I mean, I don't think what I was doing was of any great shake. I was into computers from really early on, but I was never good at math enough to, I was not fast enough at math for it to become something that that I pursued until it got to the point where it got to the level where I, I was like, okay, I can program at this level, you know? I mean, since then I've studied, but back then, uh, so, so once the first, you know, a laptop, I mean, I had, I had a, a Mac, basically I had a Mac SE basically until the time my first Mac after the Texas instrument was an SE and I had the SE until the 520C came out and then, uh, yeah, so I, I I was using computers basically since I was thirteen. Wow, what what did you use on I'm happy and I'm singing? What 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 is that? That's just Max. That's just uh-huh. yeah. It's uh, Max Four, I believe. And that was done. That was done on a Pismo when I upgraded when the Pismos came out, and I I believe Peter and I both bought our Pismos together in Chicago. There was a computer store near where I grew up that was actually fairly, was kind of like one of those big stores, but it was really cheap. And he and I went there and bought Pismos. And I believe that night did our first gig with them at the Empty Bottle. Uh, So yeah, the Pismo was so much stronger. I I think there was something in between the, I had something between the 520C and the Pismo. I forget what it was, but the Pismo was a big jump up. That's the one you've probably seen the classic sort of fat black one that's sort of rounded. And I know Peter used that for years and years and years. And so did Christian. Uh, The Pismo was sort of all the classic, what you would now consider the classic Migo stuff. Those are all done on Pismos. And is the is a lot of the stuff on the old news releases? Is that some of those earlier computer experimentations? Yeah, I mean, those are basically things I was doing like in hotel rooms or on the train, you know, in Europe, you know, because that was Pismo was really the first one where the battery lasted long enough or whatever that you could actually work on a on a plane or work on a train. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a. I mean, I mean, the Autechre remix I did. That was literally done on a plane. I, it was finished before I, we. I landed. I was going from like Chicago to London. It was like amazing. Great studio though, you you, know, you can't be distracted. <laughs> yeah. You can't go yeah. out. You know, you're just there. Perfect. You're in it. Yeah. Uh, so it, I'm sure out out there right now, someone's li- listening to me say that, and they said, "Yeah, sounds like it." Uh, <laughs> um, 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 yeah. So those were amazing. I mean, that's like. I, I, if I remember correctly, that's what everybody's saying. Then there was the nine, a big, a big deal with a big thing that happened. And I think Christian, maybe even Peter talked about in interviews is, was the Migo Japan show at the ICC. This, that was a big it deal. Sounds like a legendary show. Yeah. It was a big deal because no matter what anyone says, no one was using computers in, 
in Japan at that time. I mean, Macs weren't really being sold. I mean, there might have been one or two, but there really wasn't because no, the Macs weren't really, really common in Japan at that time. And you can tell even now because you can't find used Macs from that period. There's very few of them because the people really didn't buy them. So like Masami was on the show. Everybody, everybody on that show, I mean, it was, it was Christian, I believe Russell. I don't think Russell was using a computer yet. I'm not sure. I might be wrong. And Russell, I knew from way before Migo. I knew him since like, when he was working at Blast first. Right. Because he was doing part-time work at Touch. And Touch was the place, became like I was talking about Christoph's place and John Duncan's place. Eventually, I my London place moved from my aunt's to the Touch office, uh, Mike Harding. So Mike, right. the Touch office, because he they, that was a house. So Mike would let me stay when I was in London. I would either stay there or at David Jackman's. Anyway, so I knew Russell from back then. And Christian, I might be wrong in saying Farmer's Manual, but I believe Farmer's Manual were there as well. I know definitely members of Farmer's Manual were there. So, but but like Masami was still all analog at that time, you know, blah, blah, blah. So basically, <laughs> I would, I left, I left a few days before everyone else because I think I had to go to Europe, but I was back in Japan a few months later and all of a sudden, everyone had Max, <laughs> and, 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 Masa- and Masami started the, the power book, uh, the the power book years. And simultaneously, like in New York, I was helping Ikue Mori. I was helping her learn Max, and she was starting to move over from uh, drum machines to Max. So, like, it was like kind of the beginning. I mean, Max existed in the academic world way, way before that, but it was sort of the first uh, crossover. It was sort of the first crossover outside of academia of things like Max and Super Collider and, and another thing called Lisa, which was uh, is now forgotten, but uh, was developed at Stime. And there were other softwares that are now forgotten because they they never went they never went past OS nine and the, the architecture of those chips. Did Cafe Matthews use Lisa? I believe you're right. I yeah. think that was kind of her thing. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I met her a couple of times, but I didn't know her well, but I believe you're right. She came to and, Michigan a lot in the late nineties and early two thousands. So I got hmm. to see her play a good few times. Yeah. I think probably because she worked at Stime a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, a lot of Dutch and, and, uh, people who worked at Stime used Lisa. It was sort of, I believe a, it was a thing like where you could grab bits. It's not granular in the traditional sense of word, but you could grab bits of a, pre-recorded sound and do things with it. And it was pretty much that. It wasn't like a programming world that you or whatever you want to say that you worked in like like Max or Super Collider or things like that. Or in Europe, there was like guys who were coders and there were guys who would use it. Like you and this is this is not meant in any way as a what's uh as making a value judgment on it. But like someone like Peter Christian, they were more interested in using the stuff than in actually writing it. So there was a friend of Christian's, I don't, I forget his name, but he had created this sort of environment inside using Max called Loop, and it was like L L O P P, I think. And then it changed. Now it's called Pool, I believe. P P O O L L. Yeah, when we talked to Christian, he talked about this software too. Yeah, yeah, I think he still uses it to this day. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was like sort of people in in the Migo world who were much more programmers than users, and you know, so you'd have that. 
I was because I was interested in it from since I was a kid, I was more like a half and half. Like I never used anybody else's stuff. It's funny because around 2001 or so, when software really hit the point where a lot of this stuff that you would have to, before then you would have to make it, was now coming out as fully formed, you know, one screen, everything. I really lost interest for a long time in computer and I stopped using Macs and all that stuff for quite a long time. I was still using Kima all through the years and Kima is like this more kind of uh, esoteric thing, but uh, I sort of lost the the lack of being able to build the thing yourself actually made me lose interest in it for quite a while. And so I, I ended up only using Kima for a long time because that's sort of more of a hardcore programming thing. Yeah, I actually lost interest in using the computer for quite a long time. Yeah. If that makes sense. Well, I, I thought it was fascinating reading about one of your Steam Room releases, Steam Room 47. Uh -huh. uh, and you said it was a byproduct of studying MIR. Oh, yeah. That and, thing. <laughs> yeah. and so I, I don't know, I guess I, I was just astounded by your, you know, involvement and interest in, in, in this type of, you know, process and in, in making sound. Well, it's, it's, it more, ha it has more to do with my interest in working with computers, actually, like going mm -hmm. back, you know, it's, I'm not interested in MIR as a, as a thing, but more interested in the technology of, of how they're pulling out this information because their use of it, or I shouldn't say there, I mean, there's a lot of people using it for different things, but uh, the, the, what it's mostly used for is of no interest to me, but uh, I'm interested in you know, how they're, how they're, how they're getting this information, how they're deriving this data. Uh, because, you know, these, these things, you might not notice at first, but if you're studying this, 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 and all these other things, they're all, not they're all, but eventually there'll be an overlap of one or two that overlaps in a way you never would have expected. It might take a couple of years, you know, who knows? So uh, I'm always studying all these things, not necessarily towards, oh, I'm going to use this in making something, but basically to keep myself interested and to keep myself seeing things from a different perspective, hopefully, eventually, by by reading things from a different perspective. And for me, most of the things that give me the most, I've, I've found for me most rewarding, things that reward me the most for studying are, are basically science and, and math. Uh, they don't necessarily directly influence what I want to do musically, but they seem to give me the most, eventually the most, they help me get a new perspective on things that, that I already know. And also be able to com combine, see things, connect things that I wouldn't have connected them if I thought of them as music or as art. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm always doing that. And sometimes, sometimes something happens. You know, this, I, I, it's something happens that makes it allows me to do something I wasn't able to do before. And I, at this point, that's kind of all that drives me more now that I'm mm -hmm. basically a hermit. <laughs> what is the concept behind Steam Room? Let me find it. One second. I think I might know where it is. When I was still living at home with my parents, I found this somewhere. <laughs> Men's steam room. A, 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 
an old sign that says men's steam room. Yes. Yeah. And I put it on my door of my room, which was my studio. And it's been basically what I call my studio ever since. So this has gone with me from Chicago to here. So incredible. Yeah, this, so this is about it. this is about 40 years old at this point. Wow. And so yeah, now what you've been doing is these is this steam room series that is on Bandcamp and I believe up into the 50s now if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I I mean it's been about a year since I put one up. I think it's like 52 or 53. Yeah. And okay. so how did that start and what was the thought behind the process the thought about putting them on Bandcamp and just you know I yeah, I guess what is the thought behind the entire series? Well, when band, right before Bandcamp started, I'm kind of like always making these things, you know. Uh and a lot of these things don't really work as records, you know what I mean? Yeah, as you could probably tell, I really think about I make when I'm making a record, I'm making a record. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if it doesn't work as a record, I'm not going to put it out. And so Peter, either Peter suggested or I asked, I think maybe Peter suggested doing the old news thing. So I started doing those and that was sort of made sense because it was contextualized like that. You know, like these are these are things from from the cupboard or whatever. And so we were doing those and around the and my I I decided that I wouldn't give him another one until the previous one sold out because I didn't want him to, you know, have boxes of these things sitting around. And I think the fourth one, I think the third or fourth one was when I started putting like new things on them instead of old things. And those, those were, <laughs> people were buying them. And so it was like a, a while between when they were coming out. And then Bandcamp, I heard about this thing called Bandcamp and I looked at it. And one of the things, there was a couple of things that, there was a couple of things about it that really appealed to me. It's like, it was of course, I mean, everybody knows about the, the, the economic model of Bandcamp. So it reminded me of, 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 of people who are, of, uh, who are doing things with honor, which would be like the two Dan, Dan Koretsky and Dan Osborne run drag city and Peter Rayberg, who were people I considered people who worked with honor. And that's why I worked with them <laughs> all the time. So mm-hmm. the Bandcamp seemed to have that. And also most importantly, you, the person who buys the stuff can download the actual thing if they want they don't you know they don't have it's not just an mp3 or a squash thing or whatever so at the same time the thing i liked about this idea of of putting stuff on Bandcamp was that i could just put it up there it would be there for the 50 or so people who are interested and then it'll be gone when i die and it wouldn't become something like i i didn't want any of the the new something something by blah 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 I didn't want it to be part of, the, I wanted out of that cycle. I, I didn't want it, them to be thought of like, oh, the new whatever, or the new record buy. It's just, there's this stuff that I did. If you're interested, it's here. If if not, go, you know, <laughs> it's fine. If you just want to listen to it, it's fine. I liked how, I liked how unconnected with all of that it could be. And as and of course it's I mean I know on the people can use Bandcamp in a very active sort of way especially now and not necessarily when it first started, 
but I liked how hands off I could be about it. I mean, I like that I'm can I I'm able to structure this idea of like what this thing is. It has a visual sort of design and that's it and that's all it needs and it's it's just there for anybody who wants it um and that's what was really appealing to me about it and it and it really you know i really think that you know especially in the early days it was it was really really well done it was one of the first things i'd seen on the internet that was something done with a sense of honor and wasn't corrupted within like six months, you know? So, uh, so then I started suggesting it to all my pals. I said, you could check out this, you know, you know, this Bandcamp thing. This, it's really, it's really working. It's really good. So that was my, that, that was my main, I just want, I just, it seemed to, it seemed to fit. It's like, there's these things. I mean, I don't put up things, the things I put up on there, Obviously, I have to think are at least good enough that I, I want uh, that not I want. I think they're good enough for other people to hear them. You know, um, they're not. Ta- I mean, they're not like, oh yeah, that's fine. You know, I mean, yeah, no, not at yeah. all. They're really, really incredible. And well, obviously, we suggest anyone go check it out because, like you said, there's over fifty, and they're all. You could just pick one at random yes. and you're not going to 100% know what it is, but the the next one might be something totally different. And then the next one's totally different. And so it's a really cool look at to what you're doing now. Man, Jim, this has been so fun. Obviously, we could obviously just keep talking for hours. It's probably a good time. There's so much that we didn't even get to. Yep. We're just going to have to do this again. This is well, like... Do a, do a, do a so, lightning. How about a lightning round? So... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> dude, like, Gaster del Sol. Lightning um, round. Lightning round. Um I'm I, I I'm I mean looking back, I'm I really think we did something genuine and we met at a t- we crossed at a time where was really the perfect time for us to cross and we did what we could do. And and I'm I I I mean I know the stuff isn't very well known now, but I think I think I think we did pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I think we did pretty good considering, and and I think what we did behind the scenes, uh, really, help, thankfully, helped a lot of people that we were indebted to, and I'm happy about that. I mean, maybe someday people will be interested in the music again. Uh, it might maybe it hasn't aged well, but I, I'm I, I mean, I think we did. I did. I think we did good, honest work. So I'm I'm very happy about that. Your Japanese tour with Carlos. Oh, that was weird because it was it was um, it was right after the big earthquake, and of course everything that came afterwards. Uh, and I believe most, almost everybody canceled. So uh, people were so happy when Carlos came. People were coming up to Carlos Everton and saying thank you for coming because, like, everybody had canceled, and everyone was so happy that Carlos was there and uh, the shows went really great. We had, a, of course, I mean, once we went outside of Tokyo, it was just the two of us and had, um, I had been living there long enough so that we were fine for translating and everything. There was no, so everything was really smooth. And I think, I think Carlos had a really good time and really just a really fun time after this, you know, kind of crazy thing happening, you know, so it was uh it was a 
I, I really distinctly remember people being so happy that Carlos came. Uh, they were just really grateful that like somebody didn't like, you know, just kind of like, let's, you know, forget about Japan. So that it was a, that was kind of a special tour. I, and I hope, I hope Carlos enjoyed it. Oh, he definitely did. Oh, good. I was talking to him about it yesterday. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And then actually another question. He said, this is perfect for lightning round. Favorite bar slash bars in Tokyo? Bars. Mm. He said to ask you this. Okay. So maybe the, did you guys go to one that maybe was well, memorable? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I can't remember. I might've taken the golden guy, which is this area, this kind of like left this area of like, it's kind of famous area of bars that fits five to six people and uh, you you basically pay uh, money to sit down, and but they were very they're very um, important in the '60s and '70s because that's where like the underground filmmakers and pe people like Terry Amashuji and all those people. It was sort of a cultural you know, a cultural kind of a uh, meeting place for people involved in uh, underground all arts. Uh, and there, I mean, it's partially touristy now, but there's still plenty of the, I might've taken them to one of those places, but I, I don't go to those. I mean, I don't go there anymore because I don't live in Tokyo anymore, but there was also an izakaya and izakaya is kind of this, uh, thing. It's like a restaurant where people get together and they eat and they drink, but it's like, you don't order you, everything is ordered for the table. Not like you don't order what you want. It's kind of like tapas mm -hmm. in that way, but it's much bigger and much louder. And it's a really common thing in Japan. And there's one uh, called Dora, which I've been going to from before I lived in Japan, which is, I'm sure I took them there because that's like, that's the best place. It's not like, like it's uh super like fancy. It's not fancy at all, but it's, it's this place where like the food is really good. It's not expensive. It's actually good booze. It's like this, it's this perfect balance between not being fancy, but for people who don't want to be fancy, but actually have an opinion about what they put in their mouth. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's kind of like, <laughs> and it stays open till five. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my favorite. Awesome. I still go there. When I, I still go there when I'm in Tokyo. Sick. I'm going to say a couple names now. Takianagi. Takianagi is a weird one for me. I found out about Takianagi by accident when I was in college. Uh, there was a, for one year, my, uh, my jazz guitar teacher, I forget his name. Uh, he was a Japanese guitarist, but he lived in New York. But he, I think he lived in New York. He was a guitarist for Joe Henderson. So he was a jazz guy and he didn't really understand what I wanted to do. And he's like, well, who are you into? And I was like, I, I like Derek Bailey. And he's like, oh, well then you might be into this guy. And he pulls this record off his shelf and it was the Takianagi uh, Tagashi duo record, which is actually a kind of like 81 or so, which is when Takianagi went into this nylon guitar phase. And he basically gave me this record because he's like, yeah, whatever, dude. And I didn't like it very much. Uh, I thought I thought the guitar. I, I, it gave me interest in Tagashi, but I didn't. I wasn't impressed by Takianagi. So, bounce a couple of years later. Long story short, uh, I meet Henry Kaiser at 
company week in 1990. And Kaiser takes a liking to me and, and says, when you get back to the States, come out to my place and stay for a week because I, I want you to help me organize my record collection. That's cool. <laughs> but it was, basically, it was basically an excuse for him to bring me out there and introduce me to people, uh, which is uh, an extremely kind thing to do. So I'm organizing his record collection and it, it has sections like, uh, you know, underground free improv guitar, you know, <laughs> it's like, and that, and that's where I first saw, uh, Lauren Connor. Well, at that Lauren, at that time, Lauren Mazikane, Haino, who had, at that point only had one record. He only had, uh, uh, Watashi Dake was the only record he had and, uh, Ray Russell. And then these other Takianagi records, which were the early ones, the noise ones. And I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, I got a record of this guy. And I was telling Henry, yeah, I'm not so into this guy. And he was like kind of surprised. Like, you don't like this guy? And I was like, oh, okay, I'll check. And then I checked those out. And those really, I was like, holy Christ almighty. What? I mean, that, that's, I mean, you didn't even have to, on one, there's one track on an omnibus record or like a, like a lot, a festival record where he's on, I think Power Free Jazz Festival, I think. You don't even have to turn the stereo on. The pre it, you put the needle down, and it's so loud you can hear it. I'm not making that. That's how I first. That's how I first played it nice. to Weasel. Weasel. I, mm -hmm. I one day Weasel was over, and I was like, "Hey, check this out. I'm not going to turn the stereo on." And that's how Weasel. That blew Weasel's mind. He could hear it without the stereo. So the next time I went to Japan. I immediately went and bought every Takinagi record I could find. And they weren't that expensive yet, but they were still really hard to find. Right. So I was really into Takinagi for a long time. So Takinagi was, uh, was I was really, really interested into, in him because he was really an outlier. And, um, and I'm glad that I was able to introduce him to some people and in some, maybe in some small way, make, uh, help other people find out about him. Al Margolis. Nice, nice guy. I owe a lot to Al Margolis. Uh, I forget how I first contact. I think the first thing I asked, uh, I can't remember. I can't, he, the first thing he put out was, was an Elvis Messiah's cassette. And I may have just sent it to him. And, you know, especially at that time, Al was, I mean, Al's always been a very nice guy. But I think he kind of would put out it, anything as long as it was halfway decent, you know, it was like, that was the spirit <laughs> of the times. And then I think, and then he put out a couple solo things. And I know I did a compilation for him, like a Chicago, like, you know, state of the union, Chicago thing. I forget what that was called. He had if Buana and he worked with a, 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 another guy named David Prescott. And David Prescott, who's now sadly not as remembered, he was another important guy who ran the Generations Unlimited. But David Prescott sadly left, stopped doing music and kind of like really kind of left it, left it behind. But both he and Al were really, really, really important. And and then Al went on to do other amazing things. I mean, he was work. He was an important person at New World Records. He was helping Phil Kneeblock run XI. He was doing, of course, he was doing his uh, Pogus after that, and he was, you know, supporting Beth White, a great composer. Beth White. He put out stuff of hers and Hans Otte, and of course, he helped. Uh, Rune Lindblad, Rune Lindblad. So, oh right, he did, did a lot of stuff. With yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, 
Al has, is a, an unsung hero uh, and a great, great guy on top of that. Moving to Japan. I should have done it earlier. <laughs> I mean, I, try, I tried. I tried when I was younger. I tried like around 98 or 99, maybe 99, but I was too young and too stupid. Yeah, it's not for everybody. It's, you know, it's, I understand. I don't recommend working here. That's a whole book unto itself. And I think it's something, I think there's already hundreds of books and YouTube videos and last will and testaments about, about that subject. I've always loved it here. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why. I even liked it before I was here. There's just a lot, a lot, a lot about living in Japan that I really like. And I know it's not for everybody, uh, but it's, uh, I've left Japan once since moving here. That trip out of Japan was terrifying and I couldn't wait to get back to Japan almost every day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the world really had changed much more than I thought it had. Uh, so, uh, it was, a, but I'm also a bit of a hermit, so it's my own fault. So. But yeah, I like, I like, I like, it. I mean, the, the area I live in now, I live up in basically with the Alps area of Japan and it's a lot like the Southern part of Ireland. And so it reminds me of, of when I was a kid in Ireland. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. This was incredible. <laughs> thank you for so, really, thank you for so inviting much me. Fun. This oh, was man, phenomenal. This was so much fun. And obviously we could just do this again as we certainly will. Yeah. I think, I think we only got up to about 1990, I think. <laughs> yeah, I know we were bouncing around all over and you know, this is, it's just great to hear your history and your relationship with the history of this sound that we all love. Yeah. So thank yeah, you and so I, much. Jim. I hope, I hope I mentioned some stuff that people ha haven't heard yet so that they can check it out. Hey, that's that's always the goal. I have a to-do list written right yeah, here. Yeah, we are. We have a to-do list of stuff that we don't know, so we're we're going to be going doing yeah. that right now. So yeah, I'm going to so I'm going to re I'm going to relook up pile of cows myself. Actually, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, awesome. Jim. Thank you. You guys have a great evening. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise. <laughs>